Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. We come now to what is the very heart of our worship service. We come before the word of the living God. Please listen as it's read. John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that the light would now shine into our darkness. We pray that the Lord Jesus, who said, I am the light of the world, would be very near to us. We pray that as we consider your word, which is said to be a light, to be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, we pray, Lord, that it would illumine all of our hearts this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we began a series in... The Gospel of John, it was an introductory message that I gave. Uh, In retrospect, I fear it might have been more confusing than helpful, uh, but I hope that there was uh, one little bit that you got out of that sermon that you can hang on to and that will help as we seek to open up this gospel over the next uh, several months. Uh, We considered last time the purpose statement of John's gospel. Uh, John, unlike the other gospel writers, gives for us, uh, in, in no uncertain or unclear terms, the exact purpose for which he's writing, and that is found in John chapter 20, verse 31. I'll read that verse for you. John tells us that these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what's the purpose of the gospel of John? Very simply, it's to engender faith. It's to engender faith in Jesus, who is the Christ, who is the Son of the living God, and there's held out this reward to faith, and that is everlasting life in the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that those of you who are already Christians uh, do not look on that purpose statement and think, well, I don't know that this series or this gospel is really for me. I already have faith, and so I'm not really sure if this purpose uh, really serves me. Uh, But surely if you've been in the the way for any number of years, you know uh, that faith can uh, grow by degrees. It could also decrease. It can be uh, weak at certain times. It can be strong at certain times. And you might wonder, how can I uh, uh, have stronger faith, richer faith, more stable faith? Well, the answer is you find it through looking at the Lord Jesus Christ afresh, You find it from going to the Lord Jesus and casting yourself upon him again and learning new things about him and maybe old things that you forgot and your faith is enlarged and it grows. And so in this series, my prayer, my hope is that, yes, some people would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ in a saving way for the first time ever. That's why John wrote this gospel, that you who presently do not have faith through seeing the Lord Jesus written across every page of the gospel account would come to have saving faith in him for the very first time. But you who already possess that saving faith through the Lord Jesus, you're not left out of this purpose statement. Yes, 
new faith, but also faith that grows and, and, and increases and has deeper roots and brighter fruits as we understand and appreciate our Lord Jesus better and better throughout this series. That's the goal of the book, and that is the goal of this series. Well, now today, we actually begin the exposition of John's gospel. We're going to look at the book itself, and we start with these opening verses found in John 1, verses 1 through 5. Uh, John 1, 1 through 5 is the first part of a larger section, uh, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, which is usually referred to as the prologue of John's gospel or the, the introduction of John's gospel. It's an utterly unique section in all of Scripture, deeply profound. I, I don't think it's an overstatement or, or inappropriate to say in some ways mystical to us. Uh, in this section of Scripture, we have revealed in some of the most you might say poetic sounding language, profound sounding language, some of the deepest and most essential truths of the Christian faith. You have articulated in the prologue of John's gospel the doctrine of creation. It's also in the prologue that we find the beginnings of the doctrine of the Trinity. You certainly have the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I appreciate what D.A. Carson says in his commentary on John's gospel as he uh, introduces us to the prologue. He says this, the prologue, the introduction, the first 18 verses of John's gospel, is a foyer to the rest of the fourth gospel, simultaneously drawing the reader in and introducing the major themes. So, so two things John is doing with the prologue to the gospel, according to Don Carson. First of all, he's drawing the reader in through great, grand, and profound language about some of the most sublime realities in the universe. He's drawing the reader in. It's interesting, after reading the prologue, uh, you almost feel like you've been in a dream or something like that. I mean, it's, it's such a profound piece of literature, piece of scripture, powerful language. But, but his goal is not merely to pique your interest, to draw you in with some uh, uh, eloquent or even elegant sounding uh, verbiage. He has a second major purpose, and that is to introduce the major themes of the book. Even just by looking at the various words John uses in the first 18 verses, you, you can discern that some of the major themes that are going to be opened up later in the gospel are found there. Words like word, or life, light, truth, grace. You have the new birth alluded to, the relationship between the Father and the Son. Major themes introduced in the prologue. You certainly have what is the major theme of the book, and it's actually the title we've given to this series in the Gospel of John. You have introduced this idea that the Word, which we'll talk about today, was made flesh. And the rest of the book is opening up this major theme. What does it mean that the Word was made flesh? I appreciate what Carson has written about the purpose of the prologue. Again, he says, supremely, the prologue summarizes how the Word, which was with God and in the very beginning, came into the sphere of time and history and tangibility. In other words, how the Son of God was sent into the world to become the Jesus of history, so that the glory and grace of God might be uniquely and perfectly disclosed. The rest of the book, Carson says, is nothing other than the expansion of this theme. Well, all I want to do this morning is consider the first five verses of the prologue. We're going to, to open up, God willing, these 18 verses over three weeks. 
I do hope at that point that the series will pick up the pace a little bit, uh, but the prologue is so profound and there's so much there. Uh, we'll start off a little slow, but uh, God being our helper will accelerate as time goes on. This morning we want to consider these first five verses. Let me read them again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I just have two points this morning. We want to consider, first of all, the identity of the word, and then secondly, the activity of the word. The identity of the word, the activity of the word. Consider with me first the identity of the word. Who is the word or what is the word? It's striking that this word, word, is chosen to introduce the gospel. Well, I just need to tell you up front that the word is Jesus. If you're familiar with the gospel, of course, you already knew that. Also, if you just read on a little ways in John 1, you get to verse 14 where we read very clearly that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, so John's going to make it abundantly clear by the time we get to verse 14, he's talking about Jesus Christ, of course. Now, by telling you up front in these first five verses that the word is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, I've, I've sort of ruined the subtlety of what John is trying to do here. He doesn't start by saying Jesus Christ was there in the beginning. He uses this term, the word. Uh, but this sermon would be utterly unintelligible if I just didn't tell you that up front. And certainly, of course, we learn it a few verses later. But the word is, is Jesus. Now, the word here that John uses in verse 1 uh, is, again, one of those Greek words that are helpful to know as Christian people. The word he uses is the word logos. In the beginning was the logos. And the logos was with God. And the logos was God. And we normally translate that word logos to mean word. So in the beginning was the word. This is one of the only times in the New Testament that this word is clearly used Christologically. That is to refer to Jesus Christ. As far as I know, there's only one other reference to uh, logos being used to describe Jesus, and that's in Revelation 19.13, where he's said to be the word of God. That's his name. Uh, coincidentally, Revelation is also written by the apostle John. But anyway, the Greek word John here uses to describe Christ is logos, meaning word. Now at first, it might appear to you, I'll be honest, it has appeared to me at different times, a very strange word used to describe Christ. But I hope to show you this morning that it's actually a brilliantly appropriate word to use to describe the Lord Jesus. Now, let me explain what I mean. I wanna first consider here, looking at the identity of the word, the meaning of this word logos, how it's normally used, okay? And let's look at the meaning of the word. Uh, the word logos, meaning word or translated word, can be used in essentially two ways. So first of all, uh, it could refer to inward thought. So a thing like the logic of something, the logic of an argument. That's sort of the internal meaning or the internal coherence of an argument. Or, or we even uh, incorporate this word logos into some of our English words like theology, biology, geology. What is geology? It's a 
the study, the internal logic or thought of a study of the earth. Okay, so it could be the inward thought of something or the inner logic or meaning of something. But the other major use, the second major use, and this is the way I think that John is using the term here in John 1 verse 1, logos sometimes refers to the outward expression of the inward thought or the outward articulation of something. We could read this as in the beginning God expressed himself. There was this outward external revelation that took place. In this sense, the word is understood as God's self-expression or his self-revelation or his self-manifestation. So though it's kind of clunky, you could read John 1.1 1, 1, uh, to, to read that in the beginning was the self-revelation. And the self-revelation was with God and the self-revelation was God. And this particular understanding of the word logos I think fits really nicely with the very last verse of the prologue, verse 18, which is sort of a, a reprisal of the first verse. There in verse 18 we read, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. or He's revealed him or expressed him or manifest him. So we take the word logos to refer to God's self-expression his supreme self-revelation, his word. Now that still may seem at first like an odd word choice or at least an odd starting place for John and his gospel. Why use the term logos as the starting point for describing Jesus in this gospel? Why not use a different term? Say the son of God. Maybe that would make more sense uh, to us. In the beginning was the son of God, and the Son of God was with God, and the Son of God was God. That would, that would fit, right? Well, of course, John could have done that. But I think that in so doing, he would be limiting himself to the very narrow idea expressed by the title Son of God. Referring to Jesus as the Son of God brings to mind a certain set number of associations, but it's not a comprehensive term. So, for example, Jesus has been revealed as not only the Son of God, but the Son of Man. He's also the Messiah, the, the Christ, the anointed one. He's described as the truth, as the life, as the light. Son of God doesn't capture sufficiently everything that John wishes to capture in this opening statement. I personally suspect that what John is doing, at least what he's trying to do, is something grander and greater with his choice of the word logos, meaning word. I think he views this word logos, the word, as a more comprehensive term that encompasses all things Christological. I think he can hardly conjure up a more all-encompassing term than this term, logos, the word. And I'm pretty sure we can see this if we take into account the Old Testament background of this word, logos. So we've considered its popular usage. Could mean inward thought, it could mean the outward expression of the inward thought, we took the latter meaning. But now I want to think a little more about the Old Testament background of this word, logos, the word. The idea of the word, the self-expression or self-revelation of God is a profoundly comprehensive idea in the Old Testament. And I think John expects that the Old Testament background would flood the mind of any Jew who is reading the book for the first time. If you're familiar with the Old Testament scriptures and you read John 1.1, I think your mind would have immediately been filled with very large associations that this word carries 
with it. Now, you may or may not be familiar with the Old Testament background of logos, the word. So let me share it with you now. God's word in the Old Testament, his logos, his word, encompasses at least three distinct ideas in the Old Testament. And they are creation, revelation, and salvation. God's word in the Old Testament is his agent of creation, revelation, and salvation. Now, I'm going to give you some verses in a second to support that, but I suspect that even as I said those words, those of you who are well-versed in the Bible thought, of course, that kind of makes sense. How did God create the world? By his word. How did God reveal himself in the Old Testament? By his word. And how does God bring about salvation and deliverance? He brings it about by his word. Let's look at each one briefly. The word was God's agent, first of all, in creation. Have you ever wondered in Genesis 1, when God created the world, why he didn't just think the world into existence? He spoke by the word of his power. Genesis 1, 3, let there be light. And there was light. He spoke. Psalm 33, verse 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Creative power. God created the world by his word. Uh, but secondly, the word is also God's agent of revelation. So whenever you see in the Old Testament that the, the word of the Lord was given, or the word of the Lord came, for example, to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1, or came to Isaiah in Isaiah 9, it's the idea of revelation. God's word came, God spoke, it was given, and revelation was the product. He speaks, and his word is his self-revelation. But then there's a third idea in the Old Testament, and that is that the Word is God's agent of salvation. And this may not be as readily apparent or obvious to you. Consider Psalm 107, verse 20. He sent out his Word and healed them and delivered them or saved them from their destruction. Maybe a more well-known text, Isaiah 55, verse 11. God said, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it, namely the salvation of his people. My word will accomplish something. He'll do something, and he will accomplish that work that I have sent him forth to do. So we see the word in the Old Testament is not only God's agent of creation, of revelation, but also in accomplishing salvation. So this word, this logos, the word, it's a remarkably comprehensive term. It encompasses all this activity, creative power and, 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 and revelatory act, and the actual salvation and deliverance of God's people. So hopefully you can see how profoundly appropriate this word logos, the word, is in accomplishing John's purposes at the start of his gospel, in setting forth to us the Lord Jesus Christ, the outset of the book. He could hardly have chosen a more comprehensive term. Jesus is God's word. His climactic self-expression and his agent of creation, revelation, and salvation. God is in effect saying, all that stuff I did to manifest myself in the Old Testament in creation, revelation, salvation, that was the word. That was Jesus Christ. He is my final agent of revelation, creation, and salvation. And we will learn in this gospel 
that Jesus Christ is not only God's agent of creation, of revelation, of salvation in the Old Testament, but he is God's agent of new creation, of final revelation, and of ultimate and eternal salvation under the new covenant. But anyway, that's all background, background that I think would have been in the mind of any Jew reading John 1 and verse 1. But what more can we learn about the identity of the word now from the text itself? We've seen how the term was used in Near Eastern culture in those days. We've considered the Old Testament background to the term the word. But what can we learn about the identity of the word from actually considering the text? I think we could learn three things in verses 1 through 2. First of all, we learn that the word was pre-existent. The word was pre-existent. John says, in the beginning was the word. And not just like there on the first day of creation. Presumably he, the word, was there before the world began because he is said to have created the world itself in verse 3. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Which means the word was there in eternity past. Pre-existent. He was there before the very creation itself, which means he himself is not part of the creation, Arius, but he himself was the creator. If you don't know who Arius is, I'm sure there's a Wikipedia article on him. But the second thing we learn about the word in the text itself, the word, of course, was preexistent. Secondly, the word was distinct or separate from God. The text says, in the beginning was the word, what's the next phrase? The word was with God. By which we can conclude that this word was, was distinct in some sense from God. The word was with God. We actually literally could say he was God's fellow. He was God's colleague. He was with God in the beginning. So the word is preexistent, there before the creation and the creator himself, and he is distinct from God or separate from God, he's with God. And then what's the third thing we learn? Lest we think the word is anything less than God, John tells us the word was God. He's preexistent, he's distinct from God, and he is God. Dramatic clarity here at the outset of John's gospel. The idea that Jesus Christ is God in the other gospel accounts It's something we only gradually arrive at. But here at the very outset in the prologue, the very first verse, John wants to make clear that Jesus Christ is God. John, from the word go, wants to sap blasphemy out of every claim that Jesus Christ is God himself. John's goal for us is going to be to confess with Thomas in chapter 20, my Lord and my God. John wants us to conclude that when we see in John 10, verse 31, uh, those scribes and Pharisees taking up stones to throw at Jesus Christ because he being a man made himself equal with God, they're the blasphemers, not we who say that Jesus Christ is God. They're the ones who blaspheme by not ascribing Godship to the Lord Jesus, the Word, the Christ. He is the Son of the living God, distinct from God, and yet he himself is God. And in saying that, all we're doing is saying what is transparently true in light of this text. The Word was God. And John doesn't waste any time in arriving at this conclusion. So we're looking at the identity of the Word. We see that the Word was preexistent. 
The word was distinct from God, and the word was God. If you're a keen student of the Bible, what do you see there in verse one? You see the seeds of nothing less than the doctrine of the Trinity. The word, Jesus Christ, the Son, was in some way distinct from God, and yet he was God. Something about that doesn't compute, that's okay. What you want to avoid is going into sort of logic chopping mode and say, how could that be? Well, maybe, maybe he ceased to be God when he came into the world. Ah, that's a heresy, okay? Okay, well, well maybe, maybe Jesus was part of the creation and then God gave him Godship. Ah, that is also a heresy. You are safest when you just say what God himself reveals in his word. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And we accept that as a matter of revelation. That is how God has revealed his son to us in his word. And if you study church history, you probably know that John 1 verse 1 is that text those early Christians returned to again and again to establish the doctrine of the Trinity and that Jesus Christ himself was very God of very God, as the creeds say. Well, there you have it, the identity of the word. He was God's self-expression and his self-revelation. The word was God's primary agent in creation, revelation, and salvation. And we learn in verse one that he was preexistent. He was distinct from God, and he was God. Now, secondly, I'd like to consider together, I'm calling this the activity of the word, what the word does. It's in the identity of the word, now the activity of the word. And I have sort of two subheadings here. The first we can address very briefly because it's just so transparently plain in the text. First of all, the word, the logos, the Lord Jesus, created the world. The word created the world. We see this in verse three. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. We see this same idea echoed in a famous early church hymn that Paul quotes from in Colossians 1 verse 16. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, and they were created for him. Brothers and sisters, the New Testament knows a Messiah who is nothing less than the creator God. Created all things, visible and invisible. You look at the Grand Canyon, you have every right to think, my Jesus made that. You look at a newborn baby and you think Christ himself created that newborn baby. That's what this text is teaching us. The Lord Jesus created the world, all things visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. Now does that mean that God the Father was not the creator? No, it doesn't mean that. But it does mean that God the Father worked through the agency of his own son who is equally God with him to create the universe. God the Father created the world through the agency of his Son, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now it's interesting, we're just a few verses in now. Uh, don't you feel like if you if you'd never read the God of John before, verses one, two, and three, you might conclude that you're reading nothing short of a creation narrative. The Word was in the beginning, he was with God, he was God, and all things were made through him. He created everything. 
Well, that brings us to our second point. Hang on to that insight there that we have a creation narrative emerging. What's the second thing the word does by way of activity? The word brings life and light, verses four and five. Let's read those verses. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, if you were reading this book for the first time, wouldn't you be thinking of life and light purely in terms of creation? I know some of you have probably read John's Gospel a thousand times. Just imagine for a second. This is the first time you're ever reading this. The Word was there in the beginning, and He was God, and He created the world, and in Him was life and, and light. Wouldn't you be thinking of those categories of life and light purely in terms of creation? If you read these first five verses... And even if you were familiar with the Old Testament, you would certainly be thinking about creation. For example, you have the words in the beginning. Same words in Greek and English that you have in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It sounds like this word, whatever or whoever he is, created the world and he gave life to everything and then he brought light out of darkness, which is sort of a creation type thing to do. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And all John is telling us is this, this word was the one who did all those things. I think if you're reading John's gospel for the first time, creation is purely the thing that's in your mind in these first five verses. Well, it's here that I need to make what I think is an incredibly important point for our study of the gospel of John if we're going to understand it correctly. I'm gonna borrow an illustration that's not original to me to make this point. Uh, some of you perhaps travel uh, regularly on, on planes. You fly to different places for work or something like that. Okay? And if you travel often, especially for work, you know that flights are just kind of awkward. You, you can't really accomplish much on a flight. First of all, you're really cramped if you're flying coach. and It's an awkward time period, usually an hour and a half, couple hours. How much can you really accomplish? Uh, on, a, on a flight to somewhere else, in the United States at least. And you, you always feel motivated, like I'm gonna get a lot of work done, I'm gonna bring my laptop, and maybe you're not that person, but you see that guy on the plane, and he's, you just feel bad for him, he's there trying to, trying to get things done, and now you gotta close your laptop, sir, and this part of the flight, you, you know, all that sort of stuff. Really, you can't do a lot of great work on a plane, at least I find that. I've, I've gone into a plane with a commentary before, and I'm a couple pages in, and I'm like, this stinks, I'm not gonna be able to get any work done. And what a lot of people do at that point is they sort of think, okay, here's how I'll approach flights from now on. You go to those little kiosks at the airport. And what do they sell there in terms of literature? These very short, sort of page-turner, kind of whodunit type books. And so uh, you think, let me pick up one of these. You know, this will at least keep my mind going. You know, I'm on the plane, make it feel like a short flight. And you take that whodunit, you go on the plane, three-hour flight. By the end of the flight, you know whodunit, okay? And... Um, but, but that whodunit, it's not like a spectacular piece of literature, right? You don't think, this makes a really valuable contribution to my library. I'm gonna hang on to this, take it home and pry. No, you just sort of take that whodunit, you've doggy-eared pages and stuff, and you just tuck it into the seat in front of you for the next person who wants to pick that up on the plane, or maybe they throw it out or whatever, okay? So my question is, is John's Gospel to be read that way? Kind of like a throwaway tract. I don't mean the content is not profound. It could still be profound. You could still throw it out. I just run through this. I got everything I need. Found out who done it, and I'm out of here. Or 
does John intend for us to read through his gospel account again and again and again? I think that's his purpose. And I don't mean that just in terms devotionally. I mean as a piece of literature. There are layers to this gospel. There's connections in this gospel we're meant to see. There's foreshadowing and there's uh, all sorts of types early on in the book that come into play later and you only find things out at the end that illuminate earlier parts of the gospel. There are books like this that we do actually keep in our libraries, right? If you've ever had the privilege, and no one in my generation has had this privilege, to actually sit in a really good like English literature class that's not just totally postmodern and, hey, what do you think it means? What do you think it means? What do you think it means? That's great. It could mean all these things for all these different people. If you're in a really great literature class, you take a book by Dickens and you, you recognize the depth and the complexity and the different layers and, and someone else sees something that you didn't see and, oh man, I got to read it through again because now that I know this, that illuminates this earlier theme and it was foreshadowed later on in the book. I think that's how the Gospel of John is meant to be read. I think there are things that are not readily apparent to us the first time around that become apparent to us later in the book, and then when we read through the book again, all of a sudden, these verses are alive to us in ways that they weren't before. And I think John's doing that here in the prologue. I believe John intends for his gospel to be read through multiple times because it's a deeply multi-layered book. And I think even a strong argument can be made that John intentionally alludes to those layers at specific times throughout the gospel. But all that to say, it's a multi-layered book. You read it through once, then you go back and read it through a second time and you observe all kinds of connections, all sorts of themes foreshadowed and layers of meaning that you didn't see before. So let me show you how this works with life and light. Okay, verses four and five. In him was life and the life was the light of men. First of all, consider life with me in John's gospel. Life is one of the major themes in John's gospel. And here at the outset we read, in him was life. And if this is the first time we've read the gospel, we're thinking at this point that this is giving life in terms of creation. After all, verse three says he created the world and in him was life. So like he gave life, like animation to to make animate beings. In him was life and so he gave life to his creatures. But as we read through the book, we recognize John is going to open up this idea of life in far more profound ways. As we read on in John's gospel, we we learn that Christ gave to give men eternal life. Life in terms of salvation, not merely creation. He was there at the beginning. He did give life at creation, but John is going to introduce a new category to us, and that's life in terms of salvation. So in John 5, verse 26, if you would turn there, please, we have a remarkably similar statement to what we have in John 1, verse 4. John 1, 4 says, in him was life. Now we're reading on, we're five chapters into the book, and in verse 26, we recognize the context is unmistakably about salvation, not creation. So maybe we'll pick up in verse 24 of chapter 5. Jesus says this, truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. He's talking about living people, right? But some of them get eternal life, this other type of life, and through that they pass from death to life. Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here 
when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Now here's the verse that's so strikingly similar to chapter 1, verse 4. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And you think back, in him was life. But here this has nothing to do with creation. This has to do with people believing on the Son and given this this new quality of life, this new vision of life that's said to be eternal life. Well, we see more of this as we move on in the gospel. Twice Jesus says, I myself am life. He says that to Martha in John 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So dead physically in terms of creation and animation, but alive eternally in a spiritual sense. And the other reference is, of course, John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Life is in Jesus. In him was life, and he himself is the life. We see that Jesus offers life again and again throughout the gospel to all those who believe. He died, John 3.16 tells us, so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. He says in John 6, verse 51, that he gave his flesh for the life of the world. He says, John 10, verse 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. You mean like, like a heartbeat? No, that's not the idea at all. Eternal life. And that that life that they have, they would have abundantly. Clearly the idea here is more than just mere creation or physical life. He's talking about a new quality of life. A new dimension of life. He's talking about eternal life that he himself gives to all those who believe on him. In him was life and he offers this life to all those who believe on him in repentance and faith. And of course, if you remember the purpose statement in John 20 verse 31, you recognize the whole entire book was written so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. You ever seen that movie, Finding Nemo, and Dory gets it at the end, and she's like, P. Sherman, 42, Wallaby Way, Sydney, and she goes back and remembers everything, right? You have that moment in John 20, 31. All of a sudden, hold on, I need to go back to chapter one. And in him was life, all of a sudden means a whole lot more. He's not just talking about giving a heartbeat to a baby. He's talking about giving eternal life to all those who believe on Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is one of the definitive things that the Word does. He brings life. He has life in himself, and therefore he himself is the dispenser of life. I want you to see this also more briefly with light, the concept of light. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Light is, of course, another major theme in John's gospel, and I think John is doing a similar thing here with light that he did with life. At first, you read verses four and five, and you're thinking about creation. After all, what is the big dramatic thing that God said at creation? Let there be light, and there was light. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. This is, this is creation, right? So you're reading along in the prologue of John for the first time, you see this word, and you think, It's like light shining in darkness. There was just darkness covering the face of the earth and then light shone. But then you read on in the gospel and you pick up new layers. You get to Jesus' statement in John 8 and verse 12. I am the light of the world. 
Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. Here again, you see light and life going together. To have spiritual life is to have light. Well, now we're talking about something more than creation, aren't we? This has to do with the very quality of our lives. Are they characterized by light, or are they characterized by darkness? The very last words Jesus says to the man born blind in John 9 is, I am the light of the world. And then he spits in the dirt and he makes some sort of compound and he applies it to his eyes and this man sees. And there unmistakably light has this idea of conversion, salvation. We're not just talking about creating the world and bringing light, now we're talking about saving light. We're talking about conversion. One of the very last things Jesus says as he closes out his public ministry in John 12 before he shut up to his disciples for another five chapters and goes to the cross after that. In John chapter 12, verse 46, he says, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. You see what's going on here? As you move through the book, you learn there's a whole lot more to this quality of light than you had originally thought. And then we go back to read through John for the second time, and we read back in John 1, verse 4, that the life was the light of men. And now we know that this is something so much more profound than creation only. This is light not only in terms of creation, but in terms of salvation and revelation. And this, too, is one of the definitive things that the Word does. He creates the world, He brings life, and He brings light, salvation, revelation. One final thing we need to see here in the exposition of these five verses. What does verse five mean? The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not, what does your translation have? Overcome, comprehend, understood. The the darkness has not overcome it, or the darkness has not understood it. See, those are different ideas, right? The word is a very difficult word to translate. It's actually somewhat like our English word grasp. I can like like grasp something and master it and do something with it. Overcome it, grasp it. Or you could grasp an idea, like understand something or comprehend something, right? That's kind of how this word works here. We're running out of time. And so I'm not going to give you all the reasons why I think what I'm about to say. But I think the word overcome is most accurate. That darkness doesn't overcome the light. The light is more powerful than darkness. I think we see this in John 12, verse 46 that I quoted a minute ago. If anyone believes in me, I'm the light of the world. If you believe in me, you won't remain in darkness. Because light overcomes darkness. Darkness cannot overcome light. And that was true at the creation. That is true In salvation as well, light overcomes the darkness. Jesus, who is the light of the world, is stronger than darkness. I want to wrap up the exposition now and share just a few lessons. Before I do, I want to quote something from J.C. Ryle as he commented on these verses. He says this, I cannot close these notes without expressing my deep sense of utter inability of the utter inability of any human commentator to enter fully into the vast and sublime truths which the passage contains. After saying all I have said, I feel as if I had only faintly touched the surface of the passage. There is something here which nothing but the light of eternity will ever fully reveal. I totally sympathize with the brother. 
I've done my very best in opening up these deep and sublime truths, but if this still feels distant and in some way mysterious and unfamiliar, don't be surprised. I think in eternity this will be revealed with greater clarity. Well, hopefully I've been faithful to the text and you have a clear understanding of these verses, but, but we've come to be fed. We've come to learn things about how to live our lives and how to grow, and I want to try to apply these verses now in ways that are helpful to you. Very briefly, there are four lessons I'd like us to learn this morning from these first five verses of John's Gospel. First of all, we should look to Jesus Christ as the fullest and most climactic revelation of God. We should look to Jesus Christ as the fullest and most climactic revelation of God. Jesus Christ is the Word made flesh. He's the Logos. He is God's self-expression, His self-disclosure, His self-revelation. The Word tells us what God is like. You're going to hear me say this a thousand times throughout this series. I'll say it for the first time now. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus Christ. If you want to know what God is like, look at His, the Word, the self-disclosure of God, the Lord Jesus. What does God think about sin? Look at Jesus. What does God think about the poor? Look at Jesus. What is God's disposition towards children? Look at Jesus. What does God want from my life? Look at Jesus. How can I be made right with God? Look at Jesus. John 1 verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. If I want to get to God, if I want to understand him, I need to look at his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If I see Jesus, I see God. And if I get Jesus, I get God. Second important lesson, and it's connected, we should worship Jesus as God. We should worship Jesus as God. I think some people, wider evangelicalism today, have a really sketchy understanding of the Trinity. God the Father, He's the big, serious presence, very authoritative. He's, he's there, God the Father. And then the Holy Spirit is like the force from Star Wars or something like that. People sometimes don't even refer to him with a personal pronoun like he, he's just it, and he's just this weird thing we don't understand. And then Jesus, well, he's the very nice guy who has all the nice things to say, and he's my friend and, and, and my buddy, and, and we're really warm and close, and he's the one I primarily talk to in prayer, and he has all the nice things to say in the Bible. Now, that is a wildly blasphemous portrayal of the Trinity, but I don't think it's very far from the popular religious mind in America today. Well, here's the biggest thought you can think about Jesus. The Word was God biggest thing you could think about Jesus is that he, the word, the very self-disclosure of God, is God. If you worship Jesus, you are worshiping God. If you talk to Jesus, you are talking to God. If you invoke the name of Jesus, you are invoking the name of your creator and the very self-expression of God. If the thoughts you have about the Son don't evoke the same degree of reverence and gravity as the thoughts you have of the Father, your theology is all out of whack. Jesus says this to Philip in John 14. Philip, have I been with you so long you don't know who I am? He who has seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one, he says. 
If you talk to Jesus, if you worship Jesus, you're worshiping God. You look at Jesus and you're looking at God himself. The word was God and we must worship him with the words of Thomas, my Lord and my God. Third lesson, life is only found in Jesus. Life is only found in Jesus. In him was life, John said. I had a conversation with a woman in a waiting room this week and she just sort of casually said at one point, well, all you have is your health. Or, or you don't have anything if you don't have your health. She's kind of right. I would amend that statement a little bit. You don't have anything if you don't have life. All you have or all you can have is life. 1 John 5.12 written a little bit after the Gospel of John, by the same John. Whoever has the Son has life. Who have the Son of God does not have life. Why? Because in him was life. He is the dispenser of life. And if you get Jesus, if you get God's own Son, you get life itself. So I ask you this morning, do you have life? I'm not talking about a mere heartbeat. I'm talking about eternal life, the life that is in God himself, his son, the Lord Jesus. And my friend, you have nothing if you don't have the life that Jesus brings. And it's so tragic because Jesus offers life freely. He says, come to me that you might have life. He holds it out to you this morning. You don't have eternal life through Jesus Christ, his son. It's not like he's hiding it back here in a corner and keeping you off and I'll take your application and maybe look at it and consider it and then maybe you might get some life. He says, I have life in myself and I offer it to you freely. Nothing less than what he said to the woman at the well in John 4. You don't have to keep coming back here. I have living water and you'll never thirst ever again. He just offers it freely to people. You don't have life this morning? You can have it. You can have it through Jesus Christ, God's own son. In him was life and the good news is he freely dispenses it to all those who come to him in repentance and faith. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Fourth and final lesson, and then we'll close. Light can overcome darkness in your life. Light can overcome darkness in your life. John 1 verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It's a wonderful promise. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. This has implications for our warning and for our welfare. First of all, for our warning. If you walk in darkness, you have the opportunity now to respond to Jesus Christ who is the light of the world. You can hide from light all you want. You can love darkness. And you can live your life in darkness. But one day the light of the world will shine and break in upon your darkness. And my friend, I assure you, the darkness will not overcome it. You hide from God, you hide from the light of the world, you recoil when that light shines, there's coming a day when there will be nowhere to hide. Isaiah 60 verse one tells of this day, arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. That day is coming. And so I want you to hear a warning this morning. If you have not come to the light and embraced Jesus as the light of the world, there's coming a day 
where light will powerfully and finally overcome darkness. But you're warned this morning that the light of the world has come into the world. That those who have walked in darkness do not have to remain in darkness, but can have the light of life. But this lesson, that light can overcome darkness in your life, it has implications for our welfare. John 12, verse 46, has often appeared to me as one of the greatest promises in all the Bible. Jesus said, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me will not remain in darkness. And some of us in this church have had a great deal of darkness in our experience. The promise of this text is that the Lord Jesus expels it. And the light of the world breaks into your darkness, it's gone. Well, some of you know that feeling of being in darkness, and you've known this promise to be true, that all my darkness and all my sin and all my shame, the light of the world broke in upon me and I embraced him and now it's gone. I don't have to remain in darkness. Perhaps you're here and you don't know the Lord Jesus and you look at your life and you say, my life is really marked by darkness. And you don't know the things I've done in private and the things I've done in secret and the things I've done in the corner and in dark places. The promise to you, my friend, is that the Lord Jesus has come as the light of the world. If you believe on him, you won't stay there. You won't re remain there. You will have the life of light. And you don't need to remain in darkness anymore. If you come to the Lord Jesus, the light of the world, he'll expel all that darkness, all that sin, all that shame. The day may come where even as a Christian you, you stumble into darkness, but you won't remain there. He'll pull you out of it and he'll shine once again on you. I remember listening to a dear friend recently who I had prayed for and went to for years. And after a season of deep darkness, deep, deep darkness, the Lord saved him. He used to be a very inward, I would have described his temperament as, he's very dark. And he asked me to go out to lunch, he wanted to tell me that he had been saved. And he said with the most open face imaginable, I said, I said what is the greatest thing about being a Christian? What, if, what, what has been the most wonderful thing in these beginning days as a follower of Christ? And he looked at me with just this open face and said, I have nothing to hide. I have nothing to hide. There's no shame, nothing to fear. The darkness is gone and the light of the world has shined upon me. I have nothing to hide. Have you experienced that freedom in the presence of the light of the world the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I invite you to him this morning to believe on him in repentance and faith. The light overcomes the darkness. Let's pray together.